Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, somebody put a river here. A river? A river. A river. Well, we're going to celebrate a culmination of a four-movie arc today. The final journey of martinis and mayhem from Mr. Matt Helm. But before we get there, we have a very special guest joining us. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help guide us into uh, the, the final Matt Helm destination. Joining us on the show this week is none other than Mr. John Cork. Now, if you don't know the name, he is an author, he is a screenwriter, a documentarian. He has been a part of James Bond history in many a way. He's also you know, a screenwriter in his own right. He's written films. I could keep going on and on, but let's hear from the man himself, Mr. John Cork. Hello, sir. How are you? It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, we're pleased to have you here. You clearly have more credentials than the both of us combined. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, we recently had uh, your partner Bruce Sively on to talk about the previous film to this, The Ambushers. Now, now that sounds like Bruce and I might be living together in matrimonial <laughs> bliss. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce is a very good friend, and he has been a wonderful collaborator. But uh, neither one of us would call each other partners on that end. Partners in crime, potentially, but uh, not, not in any other ways. I, uh, partners in crime is probably the uh, the correct way of saying it. So we'll use that from now on. Partners in crime, and he mentioned your your particular love of the Matt Helm films. But before maybe we track that, I mentioned sort of James Bond off the top. Now you've worked uh, on the James Bond documentaries. You've had a book or two out about James Bond. I actually stumbled upon your work the other day in my Penguin House version of Casino Royale at the start. You, you penned a little bit there as well. I saw you there. Uh, your name is all over James Bond and I guess by proxy spy film. So I guess tracking it back a little bit, John, where does the love of spy movies come from for you? Arrested adolescence, <laughs> a, a refusal to actually grow up and mature in any sort of meaningful <laughs> way. I think that was it. I, you know, I saw Live and Let Die when I was 11 years old and I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is cool. This is wonderful. This is this is this guy does not seem intimidated to talk to girls, which of course was my status in this world. So, you know, I I went to film school. I was very interested in movies, and then at a certain point, my fandom got to a, a certain level, and I just turned pro. And what was sort of the first step or the moment where you were like, "I need to go pro on this"? I think the point for me, as far as anything, I, I there was a screening of a film I'd written called The Long Walk Home, and I saw Timothy Dalton in the lobby of the Directors Guild in Los Angeles, and I walked up to Timothy Dalton, and I said, you know, I have to let you know, I introduced myself and as the screenwriter, and I said, I have to let you know, I... I became interested in film because of the James Bond movies, even though the movie I'd written was a, an American civil rights drama, and, you know, no qualities of any James Bond film, uh, for better or worse. Certainly, if you're doing a civil rights film, you probably don't need a lot of James Bondian elements in it. And he said, oh, well, you should meet Barbara Broccoli, who had escorted him to the screening 
The film starred Whoopi Goldberg, and Barbara, of course, just recently worked with Whoopi Goldberg on the film Till. So uh, long, strange arcs of history. But that was in 1990 was when that screening was. Mm -hmm. And was that where your connection with, I guess, going pro with Bond came from then? Was that sort of a chance meeting with Barbara? I don't know that Barbara would even remember the meeting. She might remember it. It's never come up again. Actually, my agent knew I was a big James Bond fan. And when they sort of resolved all the legal entanglements that they had with Giancarlo Peretti and Credit Lyonnais, back in the early 90s, in 1993, they started looking for writers. And a lot of people who I knew through the Ian Fleming Foundation, which I was on the board of directors of and editing a magazine, eventually editing a magazine called GoldenEye Magazine, uh, I'd already had it out by then. They were saying, so so what's going on with the new Bond film? So I called my agent and my agent called me back and she said, well, John, I'll tell you what's going on. They're looking for writers and uh, you have an appointment to go in and pitch to them. And so that was that was the benefit of having a good agent. Right. And what sort of led to the the documentaries on the home video releases, which all band, uh, Bond fans absolutely treasure. So thank you so much for those. But well, the, the very small percentage of Bond fans that actually watch those documentaries. <laughs> well, in the in the world of diehard Bond fans, they are obsessed over. And I mean, I have myself have watched all of them. I'm going to say minimum four times, minimum, and some more. Um, but when you you know receive this project. I would imagine it's a Bond fan's dream, but in terms of the work behind the scenes, how like how involved were they? Like how much work did it take to put all of those documentaries together? Well, it was a whole team. So Bruce Sibley was involved, uh, of course, from the beginning. He was a great asset. Um, I had a a fellow producer on there um, who worked with me on one set of them. I worked with Lee Pfeiffer and Mark Cerulli on the first couple of them there so and then you know you have people like paul scrabo and george m Mueller who are had great experience at nbc over the years they came in because they were huge bond fans shot the and recorded a bunch of interviews for us we worked with some wonderful video editors to help us put those together so it, it was a large operation i mean the last time that i did sort of a full run of the bond series i mean we had a budget now it's a lot of work we had to do but we had a budget well over a million dollars so to do all of them so you know there were some resources that were put behind it it was still i wish i'd run the business better on that end there probably would have been fewer interviews i would have done but there were just too many people i wanted to talk to and you end up blowing through your budgets that way so but i did just fine with it right I would I would recommend listeners check out your appearance on the James Bond A to Z podcast. They're good friends of the show. And I was listening to it recently and you mentioned something I didn't find on your credits, but you had you sort of pitched for Bond films. You you'd written a basically a couple of treatments and uh, I guess what was becoming Goldeneye and then becoming Tomorrow Under the Dies at one point. Is that is that true? Yeah, it gets muddled very easily. There were three writers that were all hired at the same time. One of them was Michael France. Michael France was always going to be the writer of Goldeneye. Now it got rewritten. You know, Kevin Wade was in there. Bruce Feirstein did a wonderful work at the end of it there. Um, but no one else was writing on Goldeneye at that point in time. So they hired another writer named Richard Smith, who's unfortunately passed away at this point. And then they hired me to, to 
right as well. And we were hired to write treatments. I don't know whatever happened to Richard Smith's treatment. I actually read an, an early sort of pitch of his treatment, but I could never get a story idea that clicked with them on that end. I had pitched something that involved satellites. Needless to say, they didn't want to develop a second satellite story with GoldenEye, even though Tomorrow Never Dies also dealt with satellites. Yeah. But they they were not... Um, yeah, so we tried to come up with different ideas. And in the course of that, I kept saying to them, okay, who is James Bond now? Mm. Now we're into the 90s. The you know, Berlin Wall has fallen. The Iron Curtain has come down. Who is James Bond? And that led to me working on a document called James Bond in the 90s, which is of no use to anybody right now. But at the time... We went through, I went through all the novels, I went through examples from the films, and I said, okay, here's examples of James Bond's character, here's where we think we he ought to be in the 90s, at meetings with Cubby, Barbara, Michael, and even Dana, uh, discussing where we wanted James Bond to be in the 1990s. And they handed that out to other writers, they handed it out to department heads, as really a touchstone thing. It wasn't a book of laws. It wasn't a book of rules. It was just a place like, you may disagree with this. Mm. Maybe you'll have a different idea of who James Bond is and try to do something very different with it that may be better than the ideas in this document. But it was at least a starting point of like, all right, is this the James Bond of The Spy Who Loved Me? Is this the James Bond of License to Kill? Is this the James Bond of Goldfinger? Different times call for a different version of the character. Mm -hmm. And your introduction was with Live and Let Die. And I'm just curious, you know, when you look at Bond now, do you find yourself still gravitating towards that Roger Moore era? Or what era for you now is kind of your favorites, if you will? Well, my first memory of ever seeing any movie anywhere in a movie theater was from Rush With Love. Mm -hmm. I was a very small child, and it's a very brief memory of the water catching on fire. But Live and Let Die was the film that made me a fan. And I quite enjoyed the Roger Moore era. But I have to say, as far as eras go, the early Sean Connery films and then the Daniel Craig era, you know, Daniel Craig's performance is, is just so solid for me. He's just such a fantastic actor. So, uh, you know, all of the eras have their pluses and minuses. And at a certain point, you just come to a point where you find something you can love in all of them. And if you're a hard, hardcore enough fan, you also find something you can despise in all of them. You know, Bond fans love nothing more than to sit around and just bitch about these movies that they love. <laughs> so, we, we've spent many hours doing exactly that on the show. And, you know, I, I said listening to that episode, and I'll put links in the show notes below to really go through it. But, you know, there's things we haven't touched on. You know, you worked with Mariam Darbo on Bond Girls Are Forever, uh, former guest on the show, Mariam. And that's a, a wonderful book. You also, again, worked with Bruce on James Bond A Legacy, another wonderful book there that's up on my shelf. And I just think, you know, what a person to have on to talk about Matt Helm. <laughs> exactly. So, well, you know, I did the special features for the Flint, the two Flint movies. Yes, you did. Uh, I, 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 there was a, somebody else who did some other special features, but my company did some special features for those. And so I feel like the big three are Matt Helm, James Bond, and, and Derek Flint, of course, in that order. But now I've got the chance to to touch the golden hymn of Matt Helm, and I so deeply appreciate it. And I am I'm in your debts. Well, I I think actually with the the Derek Flint ones, I think you actually spoke to one of the friends of the show, Matt Bradford. I interviewed him for one of those or two of those back in the day for those special features. 
if my memory serves. Yeah, Matthew Bradford's a great guy. I love Matt. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's mm-hmm. he's been on a couple of times. Very insightful about, especially European spy films. He knows his stuff, so he's a good get. But just as a one sort of last overlooking question, maybe before we get to Matt Helm himself, outside of Bond, perhaps, but spy movies. You mentioned Derek Flint. You mentioned Matt Helm. Is James Bond what you always go back to, or do you find yourself gravitating back to different types of spy films when you're picking a spy film? Yeah, I like to try to watch ones that I've never seen before. With the Bond films, I have seen them so many times at this point in my life, because when you work on the special features, when you're going through and making the documentaries, I mean, you're just running back and forth through them. It actually took me a few years after the last time I did a run of special features, which was 2000 and eight, nine, somewhere around there. Uh, It took me a couple of years before I could just sit down and watch a Bond film and actually enjoy it. And, and, you know, I have, I'll meet new people and they go, we should watch a Bond film together. And I'm like, okay, do do you mind if I'm on my phone sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) I might have seen this one before. Yeah, it's it's like, would you like me to do my little trick where I say each line of dialogue before it's actually spoken on screen? You're like a walking audio commentary, yeah. basically. <laughs> you know, I'm on the audio commentaries for many of those titles. Oh, so yeah. that's I, yeah, very true. And I, I, yeah. I suppose then Matt Helm, Matt Helm himself, Cam, we're here. Let's talk about him. What is the film in question? Yes, we are tackling 1968's The Wrecking Crew. The final Matt Helm adventure starring Dean Martin. Yes, he's he's sailing off, not on a hovercraft this time. Uh, he's back on a train. But I think before we talk about our experiences, let's get that letterbox synopsis out of the way. Here it is. The Wrecking Crew. Matt Helm is alive and well and swinging in Copenhagen so far. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we'll keep going. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So far. So far. When Count Contini attempts to destroy the world's economy by masterminding the theft of $1 billion in US gold, Ice Chief McDonald summons secret agent Matt Helm to stop him. That works for me. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. 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 Says it all. But, Cam, before we continue with our chat about the Wrecking Crew, I think it is important to discuss a special treat we have coming up for film fans and Matt Helm fans later this week. Yes, we are talking to actress Nancy Kovac, who played Barbara, the deadly assassin, in the very first Matt Helm film, The Silencers. She is, of course, also known for films like Clash of the Titans and some pretty notable TV, Batman 66, Star Trek, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and more. Yeah, plenty of that and more. We can't wait to share this one with you. It's a fantastic chat, and Nancy was very generous with her time. So uh, make sure you stay tuned this Friday. But uh, on with the show. I want to go back to you on this one, John. I didn't really, I want to save this question to when we were here. Speaking of the three films leading up to this point, because we haven't got your thoughts on those, but what was maybe your first experience with Matt Helm and your thoughts on the first three films before we get to The Wrecking Crew? Yeah, I, I wish I could remember what network they were on, but I saw them when they were airing on television in the 1970s. And I seem to remember one of them was was on network, but soon they were all relegated to the late movies. Sure. And I would stay up and watch them, you know, on a Friday night or a Saturday night uh, when they would screen. And often 
you know, staying up too late, being rather tired, fighting to keep my eyes open. And my thoughts were, wow, these are not very good. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a real, like saying nothing about the Wrecking Crew, but about the first three, it's been really interesting tackling these on the show because they have a legacy. As you said, there is like the big three, but it's like tough to like, carve one of them in the you know in the stone on the pantheon of all-time spy films because quality wise maybe not there but they they hold a certain special place yeah i, I would say for me that they they have a weird place that they hold because these are made these are films made out of spite mm. these are not films made out of love <laughs> isn't that the key to art <laughs> making it out of spite well, okay so the the you know, the, the producer of these is Irving Allen. Yeah. And he had turned down making a deal with Ian Fleming to work with Cubby Broccoli as his producing partner to make the James Bond films. He had famously said at some point that the uh, Bond novels were not fit for television, much less feature films. And this is back in the late 1950s when television was was a lot you know, a lot fewer resources than it has now, for example. And he was still shared an office with Cubby when they were making, you know, they were still developing the early Bond films. So he was in the room when some of the discussions were going on, even as late as the development of Goldfinger, when they're talking about how to do a gadget-laden Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. And he sits there and watch watches from rush with love become the highest grossing film that was ever released in the united kingdom and he basically walks down to the bookstore finds a freaking matt helm paperback and options the rights yeah and then he decides he's going to make these things they need some sort of a star he goes to columbia which had passed on the bond films uh initially and Columbia is like, yeah, we'll do this. Who do we want to get to star in it? And Hollywood looked at the Bond films as like this weird joke. Mm. I mean, they were like, who goes and sees these? It, it, it's almost like the Fast and Furious films mm. now that a lot of people, you know, they make tons of money. They have a huge audience, but a lot of people have a great deal of disdain for the Fast and Furious films. And the Bond films were treated that way as well. You know, you don't have Goldfinger nominated for best song or from Rush with Love for best song. Because the Academy didn't want to take these things seriously, the, the the cognoscenti of Hollywood. So yeah, this is this is a film that that is made because he's like, okay, you know, I can do this too. And they make a deal with Dean Martin, and you know, it's a very lucrative deal for mm-hmm. Dean Martin, who's making more playing Matt Helm than Sean Connery's making playing James Bond. That has its own ramifications. But yeah, these are not films that are made like, oh, we love the people who want to see spy films. Yeah. These are like, oh, we can give this audience what they want in a crasser and cheaper fashion. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the philosophy that informed the making of the Matt Helm movies. Crasser and cheaper is a is a comment I might pin that we'll come back to later. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, the, one of the questions we asked right at the start is, what are your original experiences with this film in particular? I mean, you say you don't really recall your first time watching them, John, but do you recall ever seeing The, the Wrecking Crew before revisiting it for this podcast? Oh, yes. I'd seen The Wrecking Crew numerous times. 
And sort of what was your sort of previous thoughts on it back in the day when you first saw it, if you can recall? Well, the main thought is, wow, they have really good fight scenes mm. in this one. Mm. I mean, you actually see Dean Martin getting into it and doing some really cool kicks. And, you know, there's a point where he actually flips a guy over his shoulder and it's Dean Martin. It's not a stunt guy doing it. There's plenty of doubles in this movie and some very bad doubling mm -hmm. in places. Yeah, it's very Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there's that. And I, I just, you know, that's really the thing that I thought is like, oh, they they did that. And then um, they they really didn't have much of a screenplay for this, did they? Mm. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah, you know, there's no character to Matt Helm. There's just Dean Martin hamming it up. Nobody's telling Dean Martin how to act. He's too successful. He's, he's, he's making too much money off mm -hmm. of TV and records and nightclub acts. Nobody can tell him anything. So he's just goofing around and, and looking like an idiot which is you know what we do professionally so I, maybe that's mm. why i like him so much but uh, uh cam <laughs> he's the one we can relate to yeah absolutely matt helm is our man and i i yeah. mean my only connection to this film is through the recent quentin tarantino film once upon a time in hollywood which is something we will probably touch on when cam's doing behind the scenes later on that yeah, I think this it definitely is something that's worth yeah. mentioning. But uh, Cam, I'm so. quite curious about you. Had you ever caught this one? I know you have a bit of a connection with Quentin's theater. Um. Well, okay. So yes, I mean, I had never seen the Wrecking Crew before. Like many, I well, like a lot of spy fans who maybe hadn't seen the Matt Helm films, I was aware that this was a Matt Helm movie, but I really didn't know anything about it until I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which of course makes a significant deal about this movie. They show. A whole scene of Sharon Tate attending a screening of the movie. And so that was my first exposure to kind of what a Matt Helm movie even could be. And um, I went to Quentin Tarantino's movie theater, The New Beverly, in Los Angeles. And went and saw a screening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And before the movie, he played the trailer um, for The Wrecking Crew, which is really fun. It's really just Dean Martin kind of doing his drunk act and introducing the three uh, lead actresses, but giving the wrong names for all of them. And really like stumbling through the whole like commercial. It's very, very funny. I recommend people check it out. But that was really my only experience of seeing any of the Wrecking Crew. And it is interesting if you go on like Letterboxd and look up reviews for this. It's very clear that a lot of people who have watched the Wrecking Crew had not seen any other Matt Helm films. And watched it because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So have I think a very different take on this movie than I will when I give my review. Which must be absolutely fascinating to come to the fourth installment and try and assess it from there because it, it, there are a lot of things in this film that feel like an evolution from where they've come from before or or de-evolution depending on your outlook i suppose um yeah but i i guess let's let's uh let's head to the house of seven joys cam let's talk about how we got to the wrecking crew walk us through it yes so this was based on the second donald hamilton novel from 1960 and the previous writer, Herbert Baker, who'd worked on the, the, the first three, oh, was yeah. off writing the movie Hammerhead, yeah, which yeah. is another 60s spy film we will tackle. And actually, Beverly Adams, who played Love Z, Craves It um, in the previous um, Matt Helm films, was also off in Hammerhead. So they brought in a different writer, a guy named William McGivern, who was a police reporter, um, come uh, crime novelist and screenwriter started in the 1950s working in TV, and then wrote additional material for the Fritz Lang film The Big Heat from 1953, 
like some little um i believe they show like a serial in that film and he wrote the serial that they show um and then like if you look at his filmography he looks very busy but a lot of it is his novels being adapted into various films and tv shows mm -hmm. so that was um the primary source of his writing credits but he did work on some tv shows like the virginian ben casey and he also worked on the screenplay for the 1965 Joan Crawford thriller, I Saw What You Did. And that really rolled right into The Wrecking Crew. His only other real notable credit is the 1975 John Wayne police thriller, Brannigan. Solid name. Which is a terrible, terrible, terrible film. It's fascinating. I watched it, it was probably like three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. It was on stream, free streaming on Tubi. It is John Wayne is like the kind of dirty hairy knockoff cop traveling to Britain to teach him what being a police officer uh, is all about. Uh, <laughs> mm, right. Okay. I'm not going to compare crime statistics on that one. Uh, uh, oh, oh. oh, you should. You should. You should. You should watch it, Scott. I recommend you watch it. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. You. The Beatles. The Beatles have never been more poorly used mm. in a feature film. Than in Brannigan. Are the British Bobbies like walking around, um, like in those Yoldi films with their whistles and their billy clubs and uh, sort of skipping around? Not quite, but just imagine like Dirty Harry being dropped in like a more like gentle, jovial Britain. <laughs> oh, 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 right. <laughs> he's going for the austere Britain, is he? He's not, he's not going for sort of London griminess. He's going for, yeah. he's going for the counties. Right. I see. The glory of the hard edged cop kind of thing. Of course, of course, taking down a British crime ring. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get straight to Brannigan when we finish recording. And so, you know, they had the screenplay from McGibbon there, and then they brought back director Phil Carlson, who had directed The Silencers, mm. and since then had done a Glenn Ford movie called A Time for Killing and rolled right into this. And he doesn't have a whole lot of films left on his um, filmography until the end of his career, but he did do a couple of notable things. He did the sequel to Willard, uh, Ben, and then he also wrote uh, Walking Tall, the original version. Oh, okay. Right. Or sorry, I said wrote, yeah, directed, I should say, not wrote, directed. <laughs> well, he directed Walking Tall. Yeah, yeah, he directed, but it, which is almost a remake of a, a really interesting film he did earlier called The Phoenix City Story, mm. which is also about a, a true life story. And Phoenix City is in Alabama, and I grew up in Alabama, mm -hmm. as did Bruce Sibley for that matter. So uh, the Phoenix City story has always been a film that that I found fascinating. It has some documentary elements in it. He also did Kansas City Confidential, which is a really interesting low-budget film noir. So. Okay, cool. Who's the lead of the, the Phoenix uh, film? You know, it's based on John Patterson, who was uh, a, a political figure in Alabama, and I can't remember who plays John Patterson. But fair it's enough, not it's not Joe Don Baker who basically is reprising that role in the true life story of Buford Pusser. So, okay, cool. Uh, and when it came to casting this one, John Larch replaced James Gregory as Mac, allegedly because they offered Gregory a reduced salary for this film. Don't know if that's true, but that's what's out there. And very notable, Bruce Lee coached Sharon Tate and Nancy Kwan on martial arts on this film. He was the karate advisor. That is his credit. And um, he had a quote that he gave up on Dean Martin because Dean Martin wasn't really that interested in following his martial arts uh, coaching. But uh, there's still some decent Matt Helm action, so it still works on screen. And Chuck Norris is an extra in this film at the uh, 
the central location, the um, House of Seven Joys, and he's an extra in this because he was a student of Bruce Lee at the time. Well, actually, Chuck Norris is not an extra. He has a line of dialogue in the film, one single line. I, I love the idea, just going back to something Cam said a second ago, of one of the most disciplined men in the world, Bruce Lee, giving up on, uh, on Dean Martin. <laughs> he must have been so not interested in the martial arts. That he's like, do you know what? I've, I've practiced all my life, but this guy's too much work for me. I'm going to give Dean Martin some slack because, you know, you look at how busy he is at this point in his career. He is shooting his fourth Matt Helm film. I think this man was probably exhausted. I, I think to me, the most fascinating part is, is not just the idea of Bruce Lee and Dean Martin working together, but that if you make a list of the number of people who beat Chuck Norris up on screen in a movie, you've got Bruce Lee, Dean Martin, and are there any others who win the fight with Chuck Norris on camera? Who win the fight? I don't think so. Yeah, because Dean Martin takes Chuck Norris out in this movie. Yeah. No, because like once, once um, Chuck Norris is starring in his own movies, he's not losing any fights. Right. I recently watched a Chuck Norris film. I'm just trying to remember if he gets his ass handed to him or not, which was Lone Wolf McQuaid. I'm just trying to remember if he mm. loses a fight. And I don't think he loses in that one. No. No, and not in the Missing in Action movies. I've seen all of those. Mm. Well, yeah, There you go. D. Martin, whooped ass, apparently. <laughs> That's right. And uh, this movie was all shot in California. They did use the Walt Disney Ranch, uh, which is notable. But you compare that to uh, the previous film, The Ambushers, which had a lot of locations in central uh, mm -hmm. Mexico and what have you. I mean, it does feel like a noticeable shift. Um I couldn't find a budget on this movie. I would love to know because it does seem like there was some cost cutting going on. Yeah. There definitely was. And when I heard that this was set in Copenhagen, I got very excited because I have a brother who lives there. I've been there quite a bit. I love Copenhagen. I was like, oh, get to see Dean in the streets I'm familiar with. But uh, nope, it's all shot in LA. So hey-ho. Well, they have, they have a little bit of location shooting with the double. There is, there is some second yeah. unit. So. Yeah. Yeah, there is some second unit. And they mentioned like the Tivoli Gardens. I was like, oh, okay, that's a natural place. Great. Uh, but no, you don't get to see it. So hey-ho. Yeah. So I wish I could have found a budget on this one. The previous one was $4 million. This feels lower, like maybe $3 million? I don't know. It's only a guess. But um, domestically, it did $2.4 million at the box office. So it was a uh, a bit of a downgrade from Ambushers, which I believe did 10 Yeah, I think it has been diminishing returns though from all of the Dean Martins so far like they've all gone down in popularity and in returns despite the budgets mostly going up until this point yeah and I just wonder how much of that was they cranked them out so fast yeah like I mean sexy sex was a big year for Dean Martin <laughs> um yeah two in one year was big but then like I I mean maybe one of these days we'll have to sort of chart when that spy bubble bursts because you had you only lived twice the year before this. Iron Magic hasn't come yet, but like spy films are still coming out. Hammerhead, things like that, are all still playing. Goldfoot's have just come out. Yeah, there are. A <laughs> That's what killed it, yeah. Scott. It was Goldfoot. <laughs> it was Goldfoot too. Yeah, Franco and Chichio. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder what when that sort of bubble officially bursts. If you sort of look at the box office returns. Yeah. Do you have any sense of that, John? Uh, yeah, it's late 1967. Oh, and it man. just starts. It starts crashing. And this in 1968, this film's dated for 68, and but I couldn't find any evidence of it playing in a theater before early February 1969. Wow. 
So whether it did somewhere, whether it showed up in New York or they had a premiere or something, but the, the opening date appears to have been the weekend of February the 12th, 1969, which is interesting because they they have somebody playing LBJ clearly in the film. And that weekend, it was already after Nixon had been inaugurated. Right. Yeah, it is actually unusual in a weird twist. Canada seems to have gotten this movie first. Apparently, we celebrated Christmas 1968 with The Wrecking Crew, and then its main release, you know, overseas and then in America was in the new year. So that is a real rarity. It is not typical that Canada gets anything early in terms of major releases. Lucky you. And if we're charting it against the bubble bursting, then, you know, early 69 is, is just too late. Yeah, yeah, so it would seem... And so the top three for this year, and I'm going to do 1968 because we rarely talk about 1968. Mm. Number one was Funny Girl, the Barbara Streisand film. Number two is 2001 A Space Odyssey. And number three was The Odd Couple. I've seen the first two. I can't speak to The Odd Couple. Very funny. Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau comedy. Very good. Okay. Okay. And they tease at the end of this movie that The Ravagers would be the next, uh, the next Matt Helm. It was a couple factors, it seems, that just kind of killed that off. Obviously, the box office was not strong, so the uh, studio appetite, I'm sure, for a follow-up wasn't massive. But apparently, Dean Martin was also um, pretty done with the character, especially after the death of Sharon Tate. He just felt like he had zero interest in reprising the role. Um, I don't know if they would have brought her character back, but there was a whole like side drama about apparently when Dean Martin said he refused to reprise the role again, Columbia withheld the profits for murderers row in retaliation towards him, like as a contract dispute thing. Very strange. Well, the main reason they couldn't bring it back is because Matt Helm is clearly dead at the end of the film. They are sailing to their death <laughs> in that freeze frame. That sort of is a precursor to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Yes. That uh, just like we're going to freeze frame moments before the terrible tragedy happens. So they can put all the title cards they want up after that. But no, you you don't survive what you see at the end of that movie. Hey, hey, James Bond got blown up last year and apparently he's coming back. So you never know now. Spies are, spies are capable. Yeah. Uh, Matt Helm would live again as a very short-lived TV show in 1975 that ran into early 76, where they re-envisioned him as a private eye, and that show starred Tony Franciosa, and um, so I've never seen it. Have you ever watched this this show, John? You know, I, I was around and cognizant of, of the world at that point. I was very excited for the show. And I did watch that first episode, and I was I at that age. I mean, I was looking at it and go, "What is this bullshit?" <laughs> so not a recommend. That's a skip. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, if I wanted to watch Beretta, I could watch Beretta. If I wanted to watch Kojak, I could watch Kojak. I did not need to see the that that swinging monument towards toxic masculinity uh, portrayed as a seventies hard boiled crime drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, just was it was no fun mm-hmm. ironically much closer to the source material well not the private eye part that's for sure N- no but like the hard-boiled sort of r- cold reality of it all the more cynical aspects perhaps yeah 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 not that i've seen it and i i do want to maybe maybe we'll do this at the end of the discussion and have a chat as to why we think there wasn't a fifth and if there should have been a fifth and we'll come back mm-hmm. to it but cam do you have any more notes for us just the sad final note this was the final 
theatrical feature during the lifetime of Sharon Tate because um, she was murdered in 1969. She had one more movie that did come out the following year in 1970, um, which was an Italian-French co-production called 12 Plus One, co-starring Orson Welles. And it was sort of a quirky adventure film involving chairs that had jewelries hidden in them. I've never seen it, but I am actually kind of interested in tracking it down now. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that sort of hangs on this film as, as her coda is is Sharon Tate. I'm sure we'll talk about her performance in a minute, but let's let's talk about the Wrecking Crew. It's why we're here. Let's uh, steal a bunch of gold hmm. and sit down in our in our train cart full of gold. John, you're our guest. You've come along to talk about Matt Helm. You've been clamoring to talk about Matt Helm for years. It seems this is your time. This is your moment. The Wrecking Crew is 2023. What did you think of the film? This film is one of the best examples out there of just how tolerant the spy genre can be for putting up with piles of manure. <laughs> it is a film that is made with, with so little respect for the audience out there. You can see it in Bruce Lee's work choreographing the fight scenes you can see it in some of the performers who are who are trying to somehow break through and give a little bit of a performance in there you can see it in how beautifully the women are presented uh certainly objectified but but mm -hmm. dressed very well costumed very well mm -hmm. but what you see in the course of this film is is you know you see a way of looking at the spy film and feeling bad about yourself as you watch this. <laughs> it's like, if you watch the James Bond films and you're going like, oh, wow, this, this makes me feel vital as, as like a, a, a man and wanting to travel the world and see places. And you watch the Matt Helm films and you're just like, God, is this how other people see my interest in spy movies? Is mm, this, yeah. it, it, do they look at, at it and go like, he's into that? Yeah. Right. That's this cheaply made. I, I, let's just start with one thing. They set this in Denmark. The highest point in Denmark is 561 feet above sea level. They have a tramway sequence. They're driving on mountain roads. They don't <laughs> care. <laughs> they just don't give a flying flip. They're driving past English language road signs, <laughs> car chases. They just are like, whatever. These people, we can feed them as much crap as we want to. And as long as we say it's a spy movie and put Dean Martin in there and some beautiful women, we're okay. I mean, the sets look like they are leftovers from old episodes of the Munsters. <laughs> so you're saying you love this movie is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the worst part about it. I kind of do love this movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a self-awareness there, but it, it's, you know, it's like the addict who's like, you know, ah, heroin's destroying my life. Can I shoot up again? Well, it, it's got so many things that worked in the first three that still work now. And I think champion among those is Dean Martin. He may be perhaps a tad bit slower in this film. Uh, perhaps a, a tad bit more laid back and a tad less engaged, but it's still, it's still Dean Martin. It's still the king of cool. Yeah, yeah. Key, Dean Martin's complexion in this movie looks like a used ashtray. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's a, there's a tinge of gray on that tan. 
Uh, the skin, I'm talking like dead looking gray on top of whatever tanning solution that he's swathing himself with. I think Dean actually moves better in this film than he does in any of the three previous films. The problem is he just, you can't get a performance out of Dean Martin. Now, his main form of dialogue, because whatever they wrote for him, I am sure he often just didn't say. So mm. you'll have something like Sharon Tate's character going like, oh, this little canal body of water thing that we were going to drive across, it's too deep after she's sunk in over her head. And Dean Martin's, the way he acts to that is to go, it's too deep. He just repeats what's said before by anyone and asks it as a question. That's his performance. There's there's never this sort of thing where you feel like, oh, wow, this guy actually could seduce the the ugly friend of any of these women. Right. I, I did find it fascinating because, you know, we talked about the ambushers just a you know, handful of weeks ago um, at the time of recording this episode. And I mean... You watch that movie, and regardless of what you think of it, it goes like really out there, campy more so than probably the first two. But um, mm -hmm. Dean Martin has so many quips. It is wall-to-wall -wall jokes and quips throughout that movie. And it's almost like they're all stripped out of this movie. I thought that was a really interesting choice, but it felt very different from what I got in the previous film. Don't have somebody who was a former police reporter writing your jokes. Mm, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. That is uh, very astute. And I, and I will say, like, it's also stripped of several other Mattelmisms, I would say. There's no sleigh girls. Well, there kind of are. There's, like, the models. There's the whole photo sequence at the beginning. Well, they're, they're, there's some models, but they're not the sleigh girls. They're not the sleigh girls. They're, yeah. like... They're like they're like the models, which are a, sort of a different thing. But there's no like Matt Helm house with the pool slash bath slash bed. Um, there's a bunch of other things I've got listed, which I'll get into. But it feels like it is a Matt Helm film in many ways, in sort of name, mm. but not necessarily spirit. Yeah. But Cam, I I kind of want to hear from you. What do you think of the Wrecking Crew? I thought the Wrecking Crew was actually a very interesting watch. Um, and that in some ways it almost feels like the Matt Helm for your eyes only, and not in terms of a quality comparison, but in following up, um, the previous film, which went really crazy campy, right? We had like a flying saucer, a levitating mm -hmm. gun, like it went really, really goofy in that one. This one feels like by comparison, quite stripped down. It's not the like kind of overt jokiness. The criminal plot is literally just like, we stole gold and we're going to transport it which is very different than what we've gotten in the last couple. You don't have the big O villains. You have a fairly almost boring, but a, an actor I really liked in the role, like Nigel Green, I thought was actually a very memorable villain for Matt Helm. But in terms of like what the villain wants and his personality, it's not particularly outsized. The movie feels cheap to me. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of scenes, like a repeating motif of just like Matt Helm lying in bed with like women as they basically kind of repeat the same scene over and over again with different actresses. And I'm like, oh, there's no imagination here. Like, I didn't really care for the ambushers very much, but that movie was swinging away at weird things. This one is playing it incredibly safe in a way that I could kind of go, oh, I, I kind of appreciate them trying a more kind of down and dirty, low-level Matt Helm adventure. It still doesn't compare to what the novels are doing, 
but it feels in some ways a little bit closer than where we'd gone. I just don't think it works, and I think it might have been a case where if this is the second film, if this is a point where they're really energized about the series still, maybe they pull something like this off, but movie four, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't shake the image now of this film opening up with Matt Helm flying a helicopter and picking up Sun Z from the first one and dropping him into a chimney. There is a helicopter, though. There is a helicopter, which uh, I, I have a, a question about that. I I think I'm probably maybe a little bit warmer to this film than you are, Cam. Probably closer to John, actually. I really like The Silences. I think that was my favorite of the Matt Helm films. And this probably, for me, feels the closest to that. Hmm. Slightly more grounded with maybe less eccentricities that he sort of accumulated as he went along as the the guns got wackier and the girls got crazier and the villains got more maniacal uh unfortunately this film does not feature a uh red frobby thing uh <laughs> pattern pending but yeah I, I i i found this one actually a lot easier to watch i think this one was also held up by people around him sharon tate i will call out as actually being pretty darn good she's no Anne margaret but Anne Margaret is on something in in uh, in anything she does that keeps any film going. She is the lifeblood of anything she's in. But Sharon Tate is is just like it's like the antidote for whatever Dean Martin's putting out. She really just levels the playing field for me. And I really like seeing Nigel Green. It's great seeing Major Dolby back in a spy film uh, doing something weird once again. Last time we saw him was the Ipcris file many moons ago on the show. He's got a great death, a great it's- death scene. He's got a great destiny, he does indeed. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think I was overall warmer to it. I, it's a shame it's lacking some of like the Helmisms I wrote it down as, some of the accoutrement of the Matt Helm films. I imagine people seeing this for the first time, you said that about like the people in reaction to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood seeing this as the only Matt Helm film. I imagine they probably will watch this and not want to see the other ones, which is a shame. Because I don't think it's particularly as inviting as The Silences is, is a good sort of starting point. But I would probably reach for this one after I was going to reach for The Silences. I saw. I was just going through letterbox reviews, and the number of people that mentioned, you know, I, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I watched this. The number of them that said things along the lines of, if you want to watch your drunken uncle hit on women who are 20 years old for two hours, you know, sign yourself up. And it's like... I, I can understand how you would have that takeaway if this is your first Matt Helm film and you didn't see kind of when the formula sparkled a little bit more. I mean, to, to be fair, Dean Martin's never not looked like your uncle. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> at a wedding. There's no defending that one. It's true. It's true. Uh, he was just more charming when he was a bit younger, I suppose. Yes. Um, but let's not pile on it too much. Let's get to stuff that we liked. John, give us some things you really liked about The Wrecking Crew. Well, I think I've really said them there. I really love the fight sequences in there. Mm. I, I wish Bruce Lee had actually been in the film yeah. because it's just so much fun to see the fight scenes feel like actual fight scenes. And all the previous films, I, I felt the fight scenes were uh, weak beyond belief. So uh, in this one, it feels like people are actually getting the crap kicked out of them. And mm, yeah. you know, that's something you kind of want to see if you've got fight scenes in movies. I think the other thing that I liked in this movie is just being able to sit back and laugh at it. I'd love to say that I was laughing with it, but 
it's really almost like a historical document to be able to do something like take somebody who is my son's age, he's 23 years old, and be able to pull him down and say, this was considered not only acceptable at this time, but it was <laughs> mainstream entertainment. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can look at it. I also enjoy looking at all the sort of things that were, they were referencing from Bond films. They were trying to get ahead of the Bond films. They have, you know, Elkie Summers character say, we have all the time in the world, which mm -hmm. I, I always felt with these films that somehow they were getting copies of the, the scripts of the upcoming Bond films and trying to like throw a little red meat out there uh, mm -hmm. just to say, ha ha, we got this done first. And then, oh, we're going to copy this other thing that you've done in a Bond film. Uh, so, you know, they they have their version of Little Nelly, which in typical Matt Helm fashion is not nearly as cool, looks a lot more clunky and uh, is completely useless as far as having any real impact on anything. But not the best paced uh, watching that helicopter fly over those trees for about 27 minutes, you know, got a little old. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just you can tell he cares a lot about it because the helicopter, for no reason at all, just crashes off the top of the train. And and like all other vehicles of this era, the moment it hits the ground, it explodes. Mm -hmm. now, now, the champion of that is actually in Brannigan where there's a car that goes out of control and it it, it is in midair when it just ignites and explodes. Yeah. So, you know, the, but this is you know, crazy how often these sorts of things happen, but it, it's just, it's just a film where I can sit back and I can look at it and I can go, wow, the world has changed. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's what I really enjoy about it. But the fight scenes, the fight scenes are fun. Yeah. The, the fight scene between uh, Sharon Tate and Nancy Kwan in, in sort of the bedroom where they're fighting each other. I mean, I could see people taking the Mickey out of it a little bit, but I think it really works. It's actually quite vicious between the two, which you don't often see, even in Bond films from the time, you don't see two women really going at each other, apart from maybe like the, the camp scene in From Russia With Love. But also, if you go back to like 1960s and look at scenes of just martial arts in American films, it's mm. frequently very, very poor. And that continues on for a while. Like I actually felt this was pretty well staged, especially for that era. Um, and I, I will just say kind of like jumping off of that a little bit, um, I thought some of the action in this was actually better than some of the previous ones. There's a car chase in this that it is not going to, you know, land next to the French connection in the world of all-time car chases. But you compare that to like the station wagon chase in the silencers, it's much better paced. It feels like they're actually moving pretty fast. Just a better assembled action sequence. It's really bothering me because, John, you mentioned the uh, that we have all the time in the world line. And there's something else in one of the previous Matt Helm films that they actually got to jump on Bond quite famously and i've forgotten what it is now i know obviously in, in the first flint film they had a volcano lair before we had it in you only live twice yeah um but uh, it's gonna annoy me i'm gonna remember it after this recording but yeah there was something they, they've had the jump before in the helm films, so i wouldn't be surprised if they did get some sort of oversight on the upcoming scripts it is weird because like in terms of the bond stuff you know the emphasis on martial arts in this movie could be a reaction to Obviously, martial arts is becoming popular several places, but You Only Live Twice, that was the big climax of that movie. Um, and then also with Bond, the whole villain plot is very Goldfinger. You know, this whole gold theft and this villain obsessed with gold, this rich man who's basically just hanging out with Matt Helm for extended sequences of just 
well, let me show you around my place. Let me introduce you to people. That's so, you know, the Goldfinger film. And when you look up the synopsis to the actual book, The Wrecking Crew, it has nothing in common with this whatsoever. So it was very much something they were porting over and probably trying to capture a little bit of that Goldfinger glory. Well, they, they actually dressed Nigel Green in Goldfinger's suit with yeah. the the yellow checked vest underneath it and the brown tie. They they are consciously trying to make you think back to Goldfinger in various places on this thing. And of course, the villain's plot to, to sort of foil Matt Helm coming on the scene seems to just be reduced down to we'll bribe you. Mm-hmm. Hmm? Are we are we saying that uh, Nigel Green's Count Massimo Contini, which uh, a baffling name for an English actor to play that role? <laughs> uh, I I have questions about that. Are we saying that this is the uh, the long lost brother of Ulrich Goldfinger that's been written into a bunch of Bond films but never seen the light of day? Oh right, yeah, because they were pondering a Goldfinger brother at one point, weren't they? Yeah. It's 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 been around a couple of times. I think it's been sort of uh, brought up, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm happy for that to go down as as canon. Yeah, the Goldfinger sequel we never knew that we didn't really want, but got anyway. <laughs> yeah, there was no mint tulips in this one, so that's a shame. No, but uh, but Cam, something you liked. So I complained when we talked about the ambushers that while you had some very accomplished actresses in that one, Janice Rule, um, uh, Santa, yeah. yeah, and Santa Burger, um. It didn't feel like those that movie in particular kind of got its jolt of energy from its female characters the way the previous ones did, with Stella Stevens in the original, and then um, Anne Margaret in the second, and just some of the supporting cast in those movies. I feel like we are back on the right track with this movie. Dean Martin, he seems kind of asleep through a lot of this movie, and so you have Sharon Tate kind of bringing in a little bit of the a little bit of the Stella St- uh, Stevens kind of bumbling act to a lesser degree, but playing a character that's very distinct and at a certain point really is the one carrying the movie energy-wise. But mm-hmm. also Elkie Summer as a villain, I thought really worked, pairing her opposite, you know, the Nigel Green Goldfinger ripoff and having her be like the more homicidal of the two, the one who's just like, just kill him, just kill him. She was like the voice of reason that we so often say, where is that in Bond films when the Bond villain is like giving a tour of his lair? You know, in a in a way, Elkie Summer is like the um, Scott Evil character before <laughs> that character showed up like, you know, 30 years later. She's the one who actually understands what needs to be done and is the one willing to do it. But she's not willing to kill Matt Helm when she has the chance. Well, he's so, so charming. I mean, on paper, though, she understands. <laughs> it, it's that ashen face of his that really does it for her. <laughs> yeah. And then Nancy Kwan as well. There's a lot of um, very problematic elements in terms of its depiction of Asian characters in this movie, but mm-hmm. whether it's her martial arts scene or just playing this very formidable kind of you know criminal affiliate of the um, Nigel Green character, very capable, very convincing in action scenes, and you believed her as kind of like a Fiona Volpe-like seductress slash villain. Yeah, I mean, the problematic elements to me come in the, the opening song, so, which is yeah, yeah. when they're weird hugo montenegro i don't think it's even hugo montenegro who wrote the song but it the, the lyrics in that uh just a bunch of white bread chorus singers going also and yeah things like this it's it's very weird yeah it's not great not great at all and there's a there's a, a few things throughout the course of the movie that make you now cringe 
yeah, I, 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 um, I had the the female leads as, as one of my likes as well. I think all three of them, Elkie, Nancy, Sharon, all really hold the film up and probably do a lot to lift up from, I guess, Dean Martin just sort of strolling through it casually. The and I think between that and the fight scenes, they were like my two main likes as well. I I do just want to say it was nice to see Matt Helm's daydreams uh, appear once again. We haven't seen them since the silences. I even wrote down one of the lyrics. Uh, it's it's great. I want to see this in another like a, in a new song now. Uh, he's talking about the lady who has a phone attached to her, and he goes, "They call me long distance because my switchboard is the best." <laughs> sure brilliant great stuff uh but it was nice to see him daydreaming once again i really enjoyed that in the first one other than that i will say i think phil carson's gets how to pace these films because one thing i i said was good in the silences and i said is i have said is good in this one is it feels better paced than the middle two i had i struggled with the latter half of both of the second and third matt helm films i felt these were more consistent throughout not necessarily like super flashy or like high moments but they kept the same sort of tone and pace throughout where i wasn't really checking my watch i mean it's not it's not high praise like you just did your job correct correctly thank you director but considering what i had to deal with in the ambushes just recently where i wanted to pull my non-existent hair out in that (laughs) train sequence at the end and the hover motorcycle and stuff this was a, a much better sort of climax slash finale. So what we're saying is that this is not glacially paced, but maybe like a a, a gallon of ice cream left out in the sun, slowly melting paste, <laughs> which is a vast yes. improvement. But the temperature is not going up and down outside. It's staying consistent. So the ice cream is melting at the same pace. I, I just um, read actually the first Donald Hamilton book, Death of a Citizen, um in prep for this episode and it was just fascinating to me to read that novel and be like what the hell did they get this movie series like how did this spawn from these books that they have nothing in common at all really but that book is so economical in terms of its storytelling and pacing like it is a fast-paced really quick read very engaging and then i get to these movies which want to be these kind of fun hangout movies but boy pace wise they are night and day from what the source material is like they feel like they're just kind of like ambling through this one though i agree scott the previous one especially i think pacing wise really began to wear on me by the end this one i was actually surprised i paused at a certain point to get up to grab a drink or something and i was surprised how far into the movie i was like it actually felt like it was flowing okay about 10 minutes in right <laughs> yeah, yeah, that first ten minutes <laughs> just flew by. <laughs> Wooey! Yeah. Oh, sign me up. Yeah. Um, we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards, independent podcasting. Much like the spy game requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base. We're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? 
Scott, June is coming to an end, so it's time to launch the latest episode of The Debrief, where we're going to look at news related to James Bond, Mission Impossible, Secret Invasion, and who knows what else. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhearts. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. But I think we need to chuck some uh, hanky-panky grenades at the film. Dislikes time, folks. John, you've mentioned a couple, but any more you want to tackle things you didn't like about this film? You know, I, there's so many things that that in my heart and in my brain <laughs> that I dislike about the film. I, I think the thing that I dislike the most about it, though, that I also love is that we once again have a villain. And this was a, a whole industry in the 1960s of watching TV screens. Because at the time in the 1960s, you really couldn't photograph a TV screen with a film camera because there was there's a, a problem with the, the film going at 24 frames a second, the video going at 30 frames a second. And it just would look like the picture was rolling in a bad way. You'd have these lines streaking up and down them. So every time you would see a TV screen in a movie from that era, that meant somebody had to optically put in the video there. There was another way to do it, but there was an entire industry of people who made their living for a good part of a generation doing that. And I think some people were able to retire off of this film. There is so many TV screens, <laughs> closed circuit cameras, and every single one of those shots, you just go, there can't be a camera there. They yeah. do not have 17 mm -hmm. helicopters flying overneath a, over a train where the people on the security guards on the train are like, oh, I wonder what those are doing up there. <laughs> yeah. Gee, it looks like they're shooting film at us or video of us. Uh, I, I think that's one of the things that I look at there that I go like, come on, man, this is, this is too much. But then there's this other part of me that loves it. So, you know, everything I hate about the film, I also love about the film. I hate Dean Martin's performance. It is terrible acting. He is not cool and suave or debonair in any form or fashion to me. He isn't drunk. He's not funny. He's just stumbling through this role. But I love it too. I can't <laughs> help myself. So I don't really have that many Brit brats to throw after all the crap I've thrown at it so far. It's funny though, like you know, there's a Star Trek episode everyone will know, Red Alert, uh, where Red Kirk, Alert. yeah, Kirk fights the Gorn, uh, you know, the the green lizard creature. For those that don't know what the Gorn is, and that is an episode where they are constantly watching this footage that clearly no one would be filming of the two of them fighting and chasing each other. That is set in like the 23rd century, so I can give it a pass. But this movie, I'm like, come on. You're asking me to believe that you have all these cameras all over that train. I I mean, I'm kind of with you, John, where I rolled my eyes at it, but it was always kind of charming in a very kind of silly way. Yeah, it's it's almost sort of like, oh, you really, you you are laughing at me, aren't you? And I'm going to laugh back with you. I, I will say one other thing that that I found out in doing a little bit of private research on this is that the United Nations Convention on Human Rights actually barred the use of the soundtrack of this movie for interrogating prisoners. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because, like, I was watching this movie, and I know Hugo Montenegro's work is often celebrated. I hated the score to this movie. There was individual musical cues that worked for me. I liked his work in The Ambushers just fine. But that, like, 60s, like, bop, bop, bop kind of, like, music they would play consistently... 
it did the pace of this thing no favors. Like when you kept playing this very like lazy kind of poppy music, it just was grating as hell for me. There's there are lengthy sequences where the only sound is human voices going ba 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 ba. I just <laughs> over and over repeating the same like six note sequence in there. This uh, it's it is it's truly it does make you want to scream for mercy. So you won't be adding that one to your vinyl collection anytime soon. It's going to be in my uh, iTunes rotation pretty pretty heavily if I can actually find <laughs> that vinyl. <laughs> They're probably never going to release it. So they don't want to hurt the world anymore. I, and I also will point out, in terms of soundtracks, this is also, and, and in terms of missing of a, a Helmism, which is a, a term I'm going to coin from now on, Helmisms, it doesn't feature a Frank Sinatra joke in the entire film. No. No, I don't. What a shame. Yeah, they, they do bring back the Dean Martin music cues. Um, from the earlier films, which I appreciated. Mm. But yeah, you're right. There was no like really obvious jab at Frank Sinatra. Hmm. They were always just kind of fun. Yeah. I don't know. That was just a, a little thing. But yes, I, I, I had noted down uh, in my dislikes section that the soundtrack, I don't know what happened between these two films and uh, if the uh, composer had lost his mind by this point. It was the late 60s. There was a lot going around. That's very true. So it didn't work for you at all? No. Yeah. No. yeah. It, 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 I, I'm not very, despite being like, you know, moderately trained musician when it comes to soundtracks and films i don't tend to notice them too much unless they're either exceedingly good or exceedingly bad usually it's like backing tracks like lift music for me i don't really notice it's there and it jumped out to me almost immediately i mean even that song with the you know the house of seven joys the intro music was pretty bad even just lyrically yeah but throughout it was like an assault on my ears i had to just sort of ignore that was going on and and sort of go back to watching sharon tate and and dean martin it reminded me of the type of score you would hear in like a Herbie sequel, like one of those live action Disney movies where they are just cranking out four or five a year. And they're like, I don't know, come up with something peppy. Well, you know, I, I think the song at the beginning is is not only terrible, but it is hurt by the title sequence, which looks like a cheap ripoff of the intro to the old Wild Wild West TV show, mm. except with much worse music going on. It's it's It, it doesn't look like it's a feature film title sequence at all especially when by that point we'd seen like you only live twice which is one of the best i think of those 60s bond title sequences you know with like all the, the sort of iconography and that i think it's one of the and we'd seen that and this is what they put out because like i think the one for the silences was really good um they they, they, they did do quite nice ones for the matt helmers but this just felt cheap you're right and also the flint ones were memorable as well oh yeah but even something like the ambushers which does not have like a really controlled title sequence but it's more like a music video that they're doing on the beaches down in mexico yes. but yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. it works it's like somebody was thinking oh there's a song let's write the song first let's create something that's going to go with the song we're going to time everything we're going to cut it properly and this is just like god we need a title sequence don't we i mean even the typeface looks cheap yeah yeah and it would always say now so I assume when I'm watching this, this is set in 2023. <laughs> well, now I like that. That was one of my likes on the film is those little title cards that would go up and they would say Copenhagen now, yeah. you know, somewhere in the United States now. And I think that was a jab at uh, a screenwriting thing that had come up in the 1960s where you would have this sort of fake sense of urgency in your, your slug lines for screenplays of like, you know, mm. this is happening right now. This is... This is, you know, in your face. We are being current. It may have been a a 
jab at William McGivern and the actual screenwriting he did on this. I don't know. Uh, but I did think those were really, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's that's bad. And then by the third time that title card came up, I was like, okay, I'm with you. I'm in love. I'm in love. It reminded me of the uh, the printouts from it. It's either The Spy Who Loved Me or, or Moonraker from the Psycho Watch. It's Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, it, um, those little printouts come out. It just reminded me of that, obviously not a direct reference. But um, Cam, something you disliked. Well, I just wanted to sorry, follow up on that. Like, There's a weird uh, sense of immediacy they're trying to put into this movie, not just with the now kind of, you know, text at the bottom of the screen, but also like the, you have 48 hours to recover this gold. And they keep hammering that home as well, that there's only 48 hours to do this. And I'm like, really? Why, why is there only 48? And, and Dean Martin doesn't do anything fast. No, no, he doesn't. And maybe that is the perfect um, transition into what I didn't like about this movie. The pervading sense of laziness going on throughout this entire movie. <laughs> and it's like, it's there all over the Dean Martin performance. And that's kind of emblematic of just everything else that's going on. But Dean Martin, who I thought was actually maybe at his best in The Ambushers, weirdly, not one of my favorite movies, but he just seemed so on point with his quips. And he just felt like he was more engaged by that movie for whatever reason. But here, he seems so checked out. And we often in, you know, the Bond world kind of snicker maybe a little bit about, say, Sean Connery and Diamonds Are Forever or You Only Live Twice or whatever. But I'm sorry, you compare those performances to Dean Martin in this. He could be an extra who'd wandered onto the set and I would have believed it. Like he just seems so disengaged from what's going on. And you kind of tie that to the overall storytelling. There's a lot of very lazy filmmaking going on here. There's a shot. I don't know if you guys caught this. I'm sure that John did because he's seen this several times. But when they are at the um, cable car station and Nancy Kwan runs in with her team and one of the dudes just like bails and then like gets up and keeps going. And it's very, very obvious. Like this man falls to his knees and they're like, eh, that takes good. And that sort of energy <laughs> just continues on to everything else. Like you never get a real sense they were like, I think we could do this better. That's uh, some Ed Wood levels of, uh, yeah, we've got it. Just print it and move on. <laughs> Perfect. Nothing went wrong there. It's, it's great. No, I did catch the trip, actually. I just, I thought, well, yeah, he did get up and sprint immediately afterwards. I thought maybe they'd let him off and they were running out of time. <laughs> but yeah, it did jump out to me as a bit strange. And it's not an expensive effect shot where they might say, oh, crap. You know, we blew up something in this scene. We can't afford to do it again. It's literally like a group of guys running across like a pretty nondescript room. Yeah, they could have just kept the camera rolling and done one more sort of run pass and cut that together. Yeah. So, you are right. You are right. I, I I struggle to throw like insults at Dean Martin because so much of what his Matt Helm is is part of what Dean Martin is as a character at this point. Yeah. And the Dean Martin show is, I think, on the air and it's all kind of this persona he's portraying. He's, he, he is cool without being cool. He's larger than life. But I will say, yes, compared to maybe what we've seen before, this is a slightly more relaxed version of, of Matt Helm. Perhaps he has finally drunk himself down to the end of the bowl. Like he always had like a charm to him and a quick wit in the yeah. previous films. And that wit is really filed down because the, you know, the jokes just aren't there. And so it just feels like he's kind of just, oh boy, stumbling from scene to scene. And you have a lot of the, the actresses who I mentioned in my likes 
doing a lot to inject energy into their characters and trying to bring the movie to life. But the filmmakers are also not helping these actresses at all. And also Nigel Green, I thought, was doing as much as he could. Yeah. I, when you talk about the actresses and you know the filmmakers aren't helping them, there's a key moment, and it's actually in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Sharon Tate's character is first meeting Dean Martin at the hotel. Yeah. And she's, of course, playing the klutz, as Margot Robbie portraying Sharon Tate says in, in, the, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And she stumbles backwards and falls over on Matt Helm's uh, uh, camera cases. Mm-hmm. And that shot, if you watch it carefully, what happens is she falls backwards and does the pratfall. And she realizes that her legs have splayed open and that the camera may be able to see her underwear up her miniskirt there. And she immediately takes her legs and wraps them together closed. Mm. They use that take. Yeah. That's very intentional on the part of the director, the producer, and the editor. And it's not that Sharon Tate was not trying to play a sex bot character or anything like that. It's not that that character wouldn't have done it that way at that moment, but it is the kind of thing you will see in films there. And it, it sort of has an underlying sort of misogynistic quality to, to some of those moments, those sort of leering dirty old man quality to it. And, and that's one of the things that, that, struck me and i think it's used very intentionally in once upon a time in hollywood where they show that and you see sharon tate's character watching the film with the audience and reacting to the audience laughing and going like oh it's okay it's okay because mm-hmm. the audience is with this moment or whatever so i i find that that you know lack of desire to help the actresses it's really pervasive throughout the entire Matt Helm series, but it's definitely in place here. Well, I, I, I want to jump off of that a little bit there because it's, it's something that Cam and I have discussed on the previous films, yeah, the Matt Helm films, is sort of this um, the strange energy of what should come across as exceedingly misogynistic, sometimes actually playing moderately well because you feel somewhat safe with with dean martin like he is not this monster that is just chasing girls around like he is almost safe to be around maybe that's the persona that dean martin's putting across i don't know like he's in the in on the joke like he understands this is absurd yeah yeah whereas this film and i think i think you're right john i think it is actually the filmmakers more than necessarily dean but there is like a seediness to this one that isn't in the previous three films as much as it is here yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that Dean Martin's character is written in such a way that he is so magnetic to women, whether he comes across that way on screen or not, is open for debate to various people, but that he's so magnetic. And so he's constantly saying lines like, well, they're never going to believe this back at the office. And, you know, gee, I'd like to do this, but I've got something else I've got to do that's slightly more important. And, you know, what you don't have Dean Martin doing is waking up with the women the next day. You know, mm-hmm. you never get the sense that 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 Dean is actually, you know, he's dreaming about the models. The models want to sleep with him. Uh, but if he if he starts to go for them, well, it turns out one of them wants to kill him and, you know, she gets shot in the back or whatever ends up happening. But it's it's, you know, he's constantly being interrupted 
are interrupting himself from that. And I think that certainly helps it, as does the whole jokey attitude, as does the sense that the actresses are generally in on the joke. I think Cinta Berger, you know, she feels a little lost in the ambusher sometimes because she's just such a better actress than that role would let her yeah. possibly be. But you just you just get, you know, for some of those actresses, and I, I think that this is so true for uh, Sharon Tate. And, you know, we'll never know because we don't know what she would have said about this role years later. But you, you get the feeling that that this was one of those things where she's just outclassing the part that she's in and she's just doing her absolute level best to move ahead in an industry that is just objectifying her. Yeah. Like the male gaze camera in this one is incredibly strong where I was like de genuinely like surprised at how like predatory it often was, you know, like you have the introduction of Elkie summer off the top where I was like, Whoa, you don't normally have introductions like this, the way they're framing her in this shot feels like very um you know we talked in the previous ones how it felt like um, playboy culture was such a part of the matt helm series but this is like the dark side of playboy culture the way they're depicting the women here and a lot of the stuff I, yeah i agree like the stuff with sharon tate felt like the worst like they were really showcasing consistently through the movie though like examine this body part of Sharon Tate in this sequence. Now we're going to focus on this. And th and it carried like through the entirety of the movie. It was just very noticeable because as much as the previous films have a real sexist bent to them, it didn't feel as, as I think the word we've been tossing out, like seedy um, as it did here. Like here it felt, maybe because the production felt lazy and cheap, it felt almost like more like an exploitation film than kind of this winking Hollywood fantasy movie. Yeah, and certainly in these sorts of spy films, you know, Sean Connery manages to take his shirt off in the Bond films. Dean Martin takes his shirt off in the previous three Matt Helm adventures. Yeah. But in this one, we do not get to endure a shirtless Dean Martin as well. It, it really does just have that sense of like, okay, the, the turtleneck's going to stay on. But we're going to make sure that we can get Sharon Tate into a, a costume that's relatively sheer and she's going to be braless. Yeah. Which I think goes back to something you said earlier, John, where like, or, or somewhat said, but basically this film is probably the first of the Matt Helm films that feels like it's being targeted at the spy movie fan, but the bad side of sort of spy movies and what they do. Like this is like, this is the one that you don't want your mother slash wife slash girlfriend slash boyfriend walking in on you watching this is the yeah. embarrassing one you're like ah i'm not watching the wrecking crew ma <laughs> for the fifth I, I'm time watching, i'm watching springfield rifle sure, um, sure. I, i'm gonna yeah. be i'm gonna be honest with you all the mad helm films for me fall into this category and and i say that as somebody who will watch them again in my life mm. you know i have i recently watched all four in prepping for this podcast and I'm sure there's some point around where I'm going to go like, ah, I just don't remember them well enough. I need to, I need to dive back in there again. But I, again, I just don't think these, I don't think these films were ever made with the idea of we're going to make a good film. I think that these films are made with the idea of like, oh, audiences like that shit that, that my former partner Cubby is shoveling to him with the Bond films. I can do it. Yeah, I can do that. I'm not going to have the same level of budget, but what the heck people like elvis movies we're gonna make dean martin elvis movies yeah we just have him play a spy called matt helm 
I didn't know what to make because, you know, there is this kind of, as you say, like Elvis movie, this light sort of comic energy to these movies in their best moments. And that's what they're aspiring to be. But then I was really thrown by the death of the Elkie Summer character in this movie who gets like this like brutal machine gunning to death sequence that I was like, whoa, this feels like way more hard edged than what this movie's doing otherwise. I thought that was a bizarre moment. Well, Tina Louise, I mean, they have to return her to the spirit of Gilligan's Island. I mean, she's blown up <laughs> yeah. there at the beginning. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, again, that's, that's, I think, the screenwriter. I think that's William McGivern. Uh, mm. I, I, I think he tended to write to a harder edge. I don't think he had a sense of humor as a writer. There's no evidence that he did in any of his other films. And, you know, they think, well, okay, well, Dean's going to be in there. Dean can liven it up. Nigel Green's, you know, a good comic presence. Elkie Summer knew how to do that kind of sex pot comedy very, very well. Nancy Kwan had done lighter roles and, and comedy roles, but they can't bring it, they can't lift up what McGivern is, is brought to the page. Mm -hmm. I, for my dislike, I, I was going to say both of the two things you guys have said again. I think we're sort of in Sapasco for a lot of this. I, again, just have a kind of tiny little note. I think Major Dolby slash, uh, you know, Messino Contini, Nigel Green's overarching plan is, I, for a while, it was like completely indecipherable. I had no idea what Operation Rainbow was. I was like, <laughs> why is it called this? Until I actually stopped and thought, he's just trying to steal gold. That's literally it. Why am I thinking about this so much? And then I thought back to all the convoluted plots of the past. And I thought, well, at least they've stripped it down. But it, I guess it's not fun anymore. There's no reveal. Like, there's no fun, like, oh, so that's what you want to do with the gold kind of moment. Yeah. 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 He's not like irradiating it like you know, Goldfinger was or anything like that. No. no. So that I think that was a shame. I, I said it's a shame we didn't get to actually really, really see Dean Martin running around Copenhagen. Obviously, we get the second unit stuff. Uh, that would have been uh, nice. But really, that that's all my dislike. So I guess we'll go to sort of final notes before we get to the knock list. I have a sort of a couple of questions. Uh, well, you know, firstly, if, if James Bond has little Nelly as his gyrocopter, what is Matt Helm's version called? Oh, my God. It's got to be named after like a drink, right? Little Martini? <laughs> you can't have Martini because that's Bond. Yeah, you can't have Martini. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. He likes gin, so little, little Ginny. That works, little Ginny. I like it. That's his gyrocopter. I would, um, I would say fat Ginny, and it's, I believe it's a helicopter, <laughs> not a gyrocopter. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, just call it Fat Albert. I mean, it's, it, it's so big and clunky compared to to Bond's world and Little Nelly. Little Nelly, you believe, could possibly break down and fit into your trunk, but that thing is bigger than the Lincoln Continental he's driving it around in. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. Uh, we'll, we'll go with uh, we'll, we'll go with Ginny. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we had we haven't really touched on this, but Mac being recast in this film, uh, I think it was a, a loss. The actor playing Mac in this one really didn't do much for me uh, compared to the chap we had in the first few films i would say this mac i mean first off he's the most active in the story of any matt helm True. film and that maybe that's why they were trying to to, to lure back the original mac we, we beefed up the character for you. you 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 got more to do uh but then they had the the whole thing where he gets shot in the back yeah mm. at the end of the film 
And somehow, even with a bullet in his back, he is able to be in his hospital bed, leaned up on his side, awkwardly making phone calls. I mean, that's a guy who recovers quickly. I mean, I, I just had my shoulder operated on and I can barely move. So I, he, <laughs> they, they must be having some, uh, some magic sauce in ice to get through because uh, also we had an ice red alert as a combo of uh, Star Trek and uh, Matt Helm in this film, which was nice to see. Mm, yeah. Mm. Oh, and they had the red telephone, which is, of course, from Flint and Batman. Mm. So those are that was a nice little uh, uh, an extra prop they found in the prop room there somewhere. But, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you talked about the villain's plot and said he's just trying to steal gold. I think it's a little more complicated than that. The villain is trying to sh- stop a shipment of U.S. gold en route to London. And apparently the way they've decided to take it is through the peninsula nation of Denmark via train. So how do you take the gold from the United States of America? It's heading to London and managed to go so off track that you have to move it via train through Denmark. There's definitely some geographical questions there, <laughs> sure. There's um, some challenges. I don't know how- they're, yeah, they haven't quite thought their route out. I, I imagine uh, every other train line in the world has gone wrong that's led them to here. Yeah. That's the only way I can plan it. Um, but I, I'll throw it to you, John. Is there any sort of things that we haven't mentioned about the film you want to bring up before we get to the knock list? Oh, I think it's time to knock that knock list. Okay. Cam, anything from you? Uh, just that I thought the trick booth was fun. It reminded me of Live and Let Die with the House of Soul booth. Uh and I did kind of miss the wacky um, novelty gun that we got in the previous three films. Oh, well. Yeah, I think that's a, another crime writer issue there, but it would have been nice to see what they could have done. I, I still think the backwards firing gun is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, I think so too. Well, okay then. Knock list time. So far, the past three Matt Helm films have not made the knock list. It's his final chance to make the list of the best <laughs> spy movies of all time. <laughs> You don't know. It could it could like a wrecking ball burst into our lives and onto the knock list. John, you get the first vote. Is the wrecking crew making the list of the best spy movies of all time? Now, is that what the knock list is? Or is it the list of the spy movies that you absolutely need to see if you want to call yourself a spy movie fan? Well, I think um I think you've sort of drilled down into a bit of an issue with the knock list there. But uh, it's called the need to see official classics. That's where the NOC comes from. So I'll, I'll guess I'll go with your interpretation of it being need to see. Do you think you need to see the Wrecking Crew? <laughs> Absolutely, because and I, I think I wrote this to you guys in an email at a certain point. I believe that if you want to understand the power of any genre, you have to look at not only the best of that genre. But you have to understand what audiences were willing to tolerate at the worst of the genre. That wasn't just, I'm not talking about a film that nobody went and saw. And I understand that mm-hmm. this wasn't, wasn't a success, but you've, you've knocked the other three off. So we, I can't go back and get you to say, no, 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 you got to make this argument about the silencers or murderers row or ambushers. But if you really want to understand the spy movie genre, you need to actually put your head into the outhouse and smell the crap and say this is what audience were they were lining up to go and see movies like this because they were spy movies and they loved the genre that much so i say 
Absolutely. And not only that, it had a great cultural legacy because it is part of what my my favorite film of the of the 20 teens was, which mm -hmm. is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And to understand the era of 1969 that Quentin Tarantino is portraying in there, I think absolutely you need to see this and see it out of respect for the wonderful legacy and horrible tragic death of Sharon Tate. So I'm going for absolutely 100%, put it on the knock list, <laughs> make sure that people are going to watch this film and go like, oh my God, I get it. This is everything that is terrible about the spy movie genre right here on a platter, and I've got to deal with it now, even though I love this genre. <laughs> I've never, I, I didn't think we'd have such a impassioned, emphatic argument for the wrecking crew making the knock list from you john i'm glad you've brought that to us i don't know how cam's gonna vote i have a theory uh which i think might leave it to me in the end but i will i will preface before you vote cam mm. because we've not had a, a matt helm film on the list i think that is in many ways a shame mm -hmm. to not have that spy rep i mean we had uh our man flint on there yeah as a as a part of it wasn't necessarily one of our favorite spy films, but we thought it was an important part of the spy culture of the 1960s. Uh, something like a touchstone to sort of view and, and get a feel of what the other spies were doing at the time in American James Bond. And I, I stick, I stand by that choice. And I don't think In Like Flint had any reason to be on the knock list whatsoever. Uh, no. But I wonder if, if we were ever going to put a Matt Helm film on the knock list, would it be The Wrecking Crew or would it be a different one? And I think that's something to ponder when you give your answer in just a second. Cam, is the Wrecking Crew making the knock list? <laughs> I actually really appreciate what John's saying because I, there's an anecdote. I don't remember where I heard it, but it was basically along the lines of like, if you approach a, you know, a film student and say, watch The Godfather and Citizen Kane, then go do that. They aren't going to learn anything. They're going to go like, I don't understand how I can replicate this. Whereas if you show them... Movies of a lesser quality, you go, oh, these are the mistakes these filmmakers were making. Don't fall into that trap. So I think there's genuine value to that concept. But, like, I feel like this is a tough one. We, oh, You need almost an asterisk next to the Wrecking Crew explain, maybe a paragraph next to it explaining why it is on a list alongside North by Northwest and Goldfinger. So I think for me, it is a no, but I agree with the sentiment as to why John would fight for it. I. I'm going to just jump in. I know you've given a no, but like I wanted to sort of quickly examine some of the other films that are on the knock list because you're saying stuff like Goldfinger and North by Northwest, which are sure un unarguably some of the greatest films of all time, let yeah. alone spy movies. Yes. But there's also films like Spy Kids and mm -hmm. Ghost in the Shell, arguably very good films in their own right. Are they going down on like sight and sound list of the best films of all time? Maybe not. Sure. So, are you going to stick to a no on that one? Are you leaving it with me? I can't feel good about myself voting yes on The Wrecking Crew. Again, it's a need to see. It's a need <laughs> to see to understand the genre. It is not about like, oh, this has got the best camera placement. This has the best music. This has the... It's like, if you want to understand the genre of spy movies, do you need to see it? One Matt Helm film, at least. I, I actually think in some ways, yes. And it's a, in retrospect, I would have pushed harder on the silencers than I would this one. That's for sure. 
And I, I think that's probably my issue with it. Like, if I was going to pick a Matt Helm film, would it be The Wrecking Crew or would I go for a moderately good one that at least if I was sending people to go and see it, they would have a good time? Or understand Matt Helm. I don't know that The Wrecking Crew represents the best of what Matt Helm does. But The Wrecking Crew has the longest lasting legacy because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> I can't disagree with that statement. Can we put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the knock list instead? <laughs> uh, I, I would put it on any list of need-to-see films. I love that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you sticking to your guns on that one, Cam? Yeah. Okay. So this this leaves me with the painful. That's right. Uh, the, the pain. You, I, I I was trying to get you to make my life easier. Basically. I'm passing the buck. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You are. Yes, you are. I tells you what. I tells you what. There is a. There's two things going on in my head, and I'll talk you through it. I agree with John wholeheartedly. I think Matt should be represented on the list. I think we've run out of choices and we don't do retrospective changes. We are not going to add a film in posthumously. We're not going to go back and re-add a film. I think you should see what Warts and All looks like. And I think this is still an enjoyable film. I don't think I've really trashed like the film itself particularly. I think it's quite enjoyable to watch. There are problems with it, but there are problems with Goldfinger. There are problems with You Only Live Twice, and they're both on the knock list. You know, and I think you could all agree with that. Conversely, there is a certain, a shred of integrity left <laughs> on the knock list, a shred. And I worry that if I vote yes to this, I've lost that shred of integrity. Uh, but I don't, I don't think you have it all. I mean, just the poster quality <laughs> alone of all the Mad Helm films. I mean, these are, these are some of the great 60s spy movie posters of all time. The trailers, as you say, they're they're all funny. They have that self-referential quality that Hitchcock started putting in trailers back in the 1940s. You know, they they've got a lot of fun going on here on that. And this is this was the public face of spy mania in America. Matt Helm was far and away the most popular American spy in films and the most popular American spy in paperback book publishing. I think I need to make my uh, my answer now. It is tough, because at this point, too, this was not a successful Matt Helm film in comparison to the previous three. <laughs> no, but there's been unsuccessful films that have made an Oculus. Ghost in the Shell, first example. Made no money whatsoever. A complete bomb, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Uh, and there, there are other ones on there. I tell you what. I'm going to go with yes. Okay. I'm going to go with yes. There's going to be an asterisk next to it. Uh, there's a lot of provisos. There's a lot of explanations to do. And when we do a, a, a roundtable at the end of the year going through our choices, I think we'll have a discussion about it. But I think Matt Helm should be remembered. And if we are going to publish this list, like we say we're going to do at the end of this, we're going to put it together in some sort of book or something like that. We're going to put it out there. I think Matt Helm should be mentioned. I think he should get a shout out. I'm not saying this is the one for everyone. You might have problems watching this film. You might have better times watching The Silences or The Ambushes or The Wrecking or, you know, uh, Murderer's Row. But watching this film gives you not only a slice of what America's answer to James Bond was, it also is potentially one of the most culturally impactful films to come out of the spy craze, apart from James Bond from the 1960s. You just look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
And I think both are very vital arguments to make. And I'm not even going to do this as like a tribute to Sharon Tate. Of course it was a loss, but this is not as like a tribute thing to her. I think it's an important bit of cinema to look at and to examine. And I wholeheartedly agree with John. I have a question actually for John. If the option was there, would you swap out this one for a previous Matt Helm for inclusion? It's not a choice I had to make, given that no thought whatsoever. <laughs> if the option was there, though, would you have chosen a... Pre like, if we'd said pick one of the four for inclusion, would you have picked this one or would you have gone with a different one? I think because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I would have gone with this one, which which has this Euro spy section in it where Rick Dalton mm -hmm. goes off yeah. and makes a Euro spy movie. So I think I would have I think I would have stuck with this one. It's also got the best fight scenes. And that I, I you know, I'm not even a guy who loves action that much. Mm -hmm. But it just it it does give it that sense of integrity that Bruce Lee was involved with this film, that Chuck Norris, it's the first time he appears on camera. I mean, these are things that, that you know, these are like fun things to gather people around and say, well, oh, you loved 80s action movies? Watch this. That's that guy. And their right. mind explodes. Oh, you like Bruce Lee? Well, he's not in this movie, but he choreographed the fights. Mm -hmm. It's just so much that's good to be able to pinpoint to this movie for me. And I, I would also add to that. If you were asking me that question, Cam, I probably wouldn't e-jerk go for the silences because I think that's probably a more uh, entertaining view for a novice viewer. Yeah. But for someone who is trying to understand spy movies and the craft of making spy movies, I think this is probably a bit more vital. Okay. Yeah. I think I would probably push for uh, silencers, but that's more from the point of view of which one I enjoyed the most versus... The once upon a time factor with Wrecking Crew is really tough to ignore, for sure, in terms of cultural relevance. And I'm I'm sure we're going to do a Matt Helm roundtable at some point down the road and sort of go back through these films. But like, if I was going to put them in a ranking order real quick, I won't do them all, but I think the Wrecking Crew would be second. Mm -hmm. And not far behind the silences at all. I think I would probably put it third with uh, Ambushers last. Oh, we, we've all got Ambushers last. Yeah. <laughs> um but okay i didn't think we would get here but we did it is one no and two yeses and as such as such the wrecking crew is making the knock list my integrity has completely dissolved <laughs> john is punching the air as i say this he is a happy man and uh, not I, about your integrity but about the wrecking crew well i uh, to be fair if i've got the a, a, a tip of a hat from you sir i think that adds a bit of a shred of integrity so I, I will take that and uh speaking of uh sort of thanking you for that john i want to thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us today all about your love for spy movies james bond matt helm and everything else it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you sir it's been a pleasure anytime i quite enjoy it i enjoy your podcast keep up the fantastic work well, thank you. Well, thank you. And before we let you go, and trust me, we will be calling on you again, sir. Um, where can people find you online? Are you on social media? Do you have like a website or anything we can send people to? No, I'm not on social media. I, I have forsaken social media many years ago, and uh, I haven't looked back since. So I quite enjoy it. So if people want to get in touch with me, they could get in touch with you guys. You have my email if they have something they, they desperately need to to reach me on. But uh, I just try to keep my head down and get my work done. 
that is basically how I live my day to day. I do not blame you one bit for it, sir. And I wish I could stay off social media sometimes. So uh, I don't blame you for that either. But John, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat on the final Matt Helm film, The Wrecking Crew. Make sure you stay tuned for later this week as we speak to Hollywood legend Miss Nancy Kovac. But Cam, what are we tackling next week? I mean, Scott, talk about two peas in a pod. We are jumping from The Wrecking Crew to the 1993 David Cronenberg film, M. Butterfly, <laughs> starring Jeremy Irons. What uh, I mean, we talk about our whiplashes, but this may be uh, this is certainly up there. It is, uh, yes, a considerable one. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to this movie. I've never seen it. Um, more of kind of like a art house David Cronenberg film than his typical, you know, horror or thriller type stuff. So it should be cool. Yeah, and I think this one was based on a play originally too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hmm. definitely one to check out so there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to join us next time as we check out m butterfly uh, and if you want to help support the show you can of course join us on the patreon just find out on patreon.com slash spyhards and if you want to help spread the word of spyhards please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next time listeners remember if your sweetheart puts a pistol in her bed You'd do better sleeping with your Uncle Fred.